2: Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. In a humanitarian breakthrough, some injured Palestinians and foreign passport holders are permitted to leave Gaza for Egypt as the Rafah crossing opens. Back home a status, yellow rain warning has been in effect from 7 o'clock tonight in six counties as Storm Kiran approaches as flood-hit businesses recover from a difficult couple of weeks.
3: Some have taught me already they're not going to reopen. I mean that's a livelihood, these people have mortgages, they have bills to pay, Um,
2: where do they go? And born to run from hefty hotel prices, hospitality prices soar as Bruce Springsteen announces Irish tour dates. Now, for the first time since Israel's siege of Gaza began, the Rafah crossing has been opened. This development has allowed hundreds of foreign passport holders and some injured Gazans to pass through into Egypt. This comes as the UN Human Rights Office has said tonight that the Israeli strike on a refugee camp could amount to a war crime. Well, here to discuss this further is Fine Gael Senator Gareth O'Hearn, Sinn Féin TD, Rory Merku, and Group Head of News with the Irish Independent Kevin Doyle. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. And um, Kevin, to come to you first on uh, the Palestinian 76 injured Palestinians and 335 foreigners, we're hearing, being allowed out in this first phase through the Rafa crossing. Uh, it's the first time it's happened in over three weeks of war. Uh, a result, Joe Biden says, of intense and urgent diplomacy. What was going on behind the scenes?
4: Well, I think the idea that it's the result of intense and urgent diplomacy is over-egging it a little bit because that is tiny numbers in terms of hospitals being shut down, cancer patients unable to get treatment, um, children dead, um, families displaced, and the amount of people who have moved south towards that Rafa uh, border, which basically leads out into the Egyptian desert, Um I think when we're talking about dozens of people getting out for emergency treatment, it's not a huge amount. So the diplomacy that Joe Biden is talking about, it has been slow. I get Egypt are, you could argue, understandably worried about opening that border too wide because there will be a rush of people, obviously, to escape. But they are escaping from being bombed, from the noise and the stench of death all around them. Um, so I guess what happened today is welcome. But to be honest, it is so little that in the scheme of what we're talking about here, that that it isn't the big news that it seems to be announced by some of those who are, are, are leading the charge on it.
2: And there must also be a fear for Palestinians that if they do leave, um, that they then become displaced again and will not be able to um, return uh, to Gaza when uh, this is all over. Of course, the, the timeline around when this is all over remains Uh, very unclear. Let's talk about the international passport holders, though, because we know there are 35 uh, Irish passport holders. They weren't on the list today. Um, What do we know about their fate and when they may be able to leave Gaza?
4: Well, we don't know if if they will get it over the next few days or where it is. We do know that the Department of Foreign Affairs are, are working on that as best they can. Um, I understand some of that is complicated because it could be a scenario where one member of a family has an Irish passport. Do they leave everybody else behind and go themselves for freedom? Um, so it's not as straightforward as saying line up at the gate and you get through because you have an Irish passport. So I guess quite a number of countries did get citizens out today. Um, so you could perhaps hope that in the coming days that some of those um, Irish people will get out. But to be honest, it's so uncertain at this stage, you couldn't predict it.
2: Mm. Uh, Gareth, on that, on Virgin Media News, we've been following Ibrahim Alaka, who is one of um, the many, the 35 uh, of we, uh, that we know of Irish passport holders who are in Gaza at the moment. He's there with his wife and his children. Uh, what are the government doing um, to help the likes of Ibrahim and his family? <laughs>
3: Yeah. And when you hear Ibrahim's story, you can't but be touched and affected by it. And, you know, we have a responsibility to those 35 citizens to, to, to protect them, to be able to bring them home to Ireland uh, if they choose to, to, to come back. Um, but this has to be done in, a, in the well, wider context. But he's
2: desperate context. to leave and yeah, he says absolutely. what he's worried about is he won't know if he's on a list. There won't uh, yeah. be an inability to contact him should he and his family be able to Yeah, leave?
3: and there's there's so much uncertainty at the moment because this is the first day that the border, that the, the Rafa Crossing, has actually opened. And it seems to be quite chaotic uh, at the moment. But from an EU perspective, we need to make sure that all EU citizens... Uh, are able to freely leave Gaza. Like that was one of the recommendations. That was one of the requests made by the EU, along with a ceasefire, along with hostages being released, uh, and with food and medicine being allowed in through the crossing. Um, but look, it's 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 obviously uh, a tense time. Uh, mm-hmm. It's good news that it's opened. Uh, as Kevin said, it's it's so little that has come true at the moment um, in in terms of what needs to be done. We're really at the early stages. Um, but those thirty five Irish citizens need to be allowed to be to 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 exit.
2: Uh, and Rory, I suppose that the the spotlight as well uh, for those who remain in hospital, who remain injured. Well, we were talking about some seventy six injured Palestinians um, being allowed to leave. There's over twenty two thousand injured civilians in hospitals right now?
1: There's also 8,500 dead, 40% of them are children. This is a greater number than were uh, massacred at Srebrenica. So the world needs to get very real in relation to what we're looking at. We all know um, the fact is we want to see, obviously, these 35 passport holders, given the ability to go out. We know the Israelis can make determinations one way or another and constantly do that. Um, And sometimes they try to make, you know, uh, teach people lessons. But my bigger fear is what is coming. We are only at the beginning of the ground operations. And my fear is you have a people who have don't have water, don't have food, don't have fuel, don't have electricity. And while we have had stronger language at times from mm-hmm. some of the international community, none of it has been strong enough. Because let's be clear, what we are looking at so, is something that comes between genocide and ethnic cleansing.
2: All right. Well, we have heard from uh, the UN tonight who has issued Um, A strong statement saying that it has raised concerns that attacks um, and civilian casualties following Israeli airstrikes on the Jabalia refugee camp were disproportionate and they could amount to war crimes. Well, earlier we spoke with UN Special Rapporteur Mary Lawler. I started by asking her to describe the human rights situation as it stands right now in Gaza.
5: It is really awful. And as you know, we need human rights defenders to document and monitor and collect data and information uh, for trying to bring perpetrators to justice. And if a case is eventually brought to, for example, the International Criminal Court, I have lost contact with my friends in Gaza, Uh, one of them, Raji Sarani, who is a very renowned human rights defender. His house was bombed last week. He's lucky he's alive. Um, he's he, What he was doing was monitoring violations and trying to collect data. And I can't contact him. It's the same with Al-Mazan Centre for Human Rights. It's the same with um, the field officers for Al-Haq, and, uh, which is based in Ramallah. And those other organisations like Al-Haq um and uh any Israeli organizations working on uh human rights in the occupied territory, and I'm talking here about both Palestine and Israel um you know they're being smeared, they're being vilified, they're being attacked um and and it's such a heartrending desperate um situation. Uh, in Gaza at the moment, totally against international law, totally against international humanitarian law. I want to condemn very forcefully the atrocities committed by Hamas on the 7th of October, where so many uh, babies and children and women were killed and many more injured, uh, 1,400 killed and many more injured, and we had all the hostages, including two human rights defenders who were peace activists, one of whom we know has been released. But the, her, there are two more um, hostages uh, still in, in Gaza. But and nothing excuses that. It is, it is, a, a, it is a war crime uh, and um, uh, breaches all international law. I also want though, to condemn the disproportionate assault by Israel on the civilians of Gaza. This is collective punishment. It breaks all international law. It is a war crime and it risks being a genocide. Um, And they have nowhere safe to go. We know that. We've seen the figures. Every time you look around, more people have been killed. We now have 3,000 children or more than 3,000 children who are supposed to be protected, um, you know, more in conflict. And we have another thousand under the rubble somewhere.
2: And that was Mary Lawler, who is the UN Special Rapporteur uh, for Human Rights Defenders. Um, just to bring you back in on this, Kevin, um, as we said, the UN having serious concerns that what happened at the, the Jabalia refugee camp, which is a refugee camp that has been in existence for decades um, in Gaza, may amount to war crimes there. Benjamin Netanyahu, when You know, when those accusations have been put to him before, um, he denounced those who dare to accuse our soldiers of war crimes as hypocrites and liars. So do UN words here hold any sway?
4: They do, but not as much as you would expect in the sense that when we saw the, the war in Ukraine, the UN had a very big forceful voice around that. But here, part of the problem is when you don't have the likes of America, when you have a number of EU countries who are as will be perceived, I guess, by the Irish government as weak on this topic, then the UN doesn't really carry the same force. And that's what we're seeing here. So, yes, you have lots of people within the UN um, saying that there are war crimes here, that what is happening is wrong. But Israel will not care about that as long as their allies in the US and elsewhere in Europe um, aren't condemning them in that same forceful way.
2: Yeah, and we know um, that Ireland have called for this full ceasefire. Um, Gareth, the the, the US have not done so. Uh, Humanitarian pauses is what the EU um, is calling for in this regard. We heard from a Hamas official today, Ghazi Hamad, saying they would repeat the October 7th attack time and time again. Uh, We must teach Israel a lesson that he said. Um, Some may ask what are the consequences then of a ceasefire if Hamas says we will do this again, we will continue to do this again.
3: Yeah, but uh, just a narrative like that just just doesn't help. Like, the reason we're calling for a ceasefire is because that's the only solution to to this conflict. Like, you know, we know better than anyone else in Ireland. We're commemorating um, atrocities of 30 years ago at the moment and little would we have known back then that 30 years later we've had peace in this island for over 25 years. You know, what happened yesterday... Does, cannot be justified. You can't look first and see who did it and then decide whether you want to justify it or not. Any reasonable or uh, uh, government or leader of any country, in my view, should be able to uh, look at the scenes from yesterday, be horrified by it and, and condemn it entirely, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of who did it.
2: Um, we did hear Rory from Mihol Martin on this, um, that the the bombing of the Jabalia um, refugee camp, um, and as yet we don't know the full death toll as a result of that, and how many civilian casualties, because presumably there are still bodies um, buried under the rubble there. Uh, Mihol Martin saying he doesn't believe it was a proportionate attack in any shape or form. Um, Israel saying they were targeting a Hamas commander and and, and tunnels. They clearly do not draw the line at bombing a refugee camp. So do words from Arthornish the hold weight here? And diplomatically, would you expect something more?
1: I, I think we have to be stronger. I think there has to be a need for condemnation. I think most people looking at this would say this is 100% a war crime. See, on that basis, they can say we were attacking a Hamas commander, we were attacking members of Hamas we were doing whatever we need to do from an Israeli security point of view as they absolutely slaughter slaughter men, women Mm -hmm. and children who may have nothing to do with Hamas in any way, shape or form. And you listen to the language that they have used in relation to human animals that they've called the Palestinians. But
2: I'm talking about what, you know, the Irish government response to this. So Sinn Féin have said the Irish government should be doing more. What more are you looking for specifically? More.
1: See, at this point in time, we, we, we were very glad that language was used in relation to a ceasefire. We, that needs immediate ceasefire now. That is the only solution mm-hmm. that there is and humanitarian aid in. We need Israel to be called out. We need to put pressure on other people from a point of view. It's not okay um, to literally say international law applies to Russia but international law does not apply to the Israelis as they are involved in an absolute slaughter, and we absolutely dread what's coming when you next. You say
2: international pressure, you're saying pressure on, you know, on the US and on our on our links there. I mean, look, when it comes to that, Kevin, and you know, we've talked about that this on the programme before, um, like. Where... <laughs> How much how much sway is there, and how much influence is there, there in this regard? We, we will be going shortly to the US to get the reaction um, to the reaction there. But um, you know, wh- what are we like as a player uh, as this you know conflict ensues? Yeah, I mean,
4: we, we are a small player. Let's be honest about it. Um, Ireland stands out on this issue in many ways um, from because normally we will go with whatever the US and the UK do on mm-hmm. foreign policy. Um, and that has been our modern history on this. Here we've stood against it. Obviously, we have a very green White House at the moment. We looked to Joe Biden when we needed backing in all the Brexit uh, rouse that took place in the last couple of years and very much welcomed that when it came. It will be interesting to see how far our government are willing now to push back on the narrative that Joe Biden has put out there.
2: Okay. well, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to Israel and Jordan um, at the end of the week. Here at more on this is U.S. correspondent Benji Heyer. Thank you for joining us on the programme tonight, Benji. Uh, What are we expecting from Antony Blinken when he returns to the Middle East?
0: Well, he's already been on on trips round to try to, you know, uh, uh, engage in this conflict diplomatically, and this will be another attempt to do just that. This is an opportunity to meet Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli officials, of course. Since his last visit, this war has evolved massively, Israel beginning that ground incursion into the besieged territory of Gaza. We heard today from the Secretary of State's spokesperson about what uh, the mission is for Anthony Blinken. He says that he'll reiterate the US support for Israel's right to defend itself. And this is crucial, given what you've just been talking about. Discuss the need to take all precautions to minimize civilian casualties. But the Secretary of State is entering this uh, trip in sort of a, a diplomatic maelstrom. He's also t- due to speak to Jordan's leaders. Jordan has recalled its Israeli ambassador and won't reinstate them until this war is over. That could take weeks, months, potentially even longer. We're also hearing that whilst... The U.S. stance from the White House, from the administration, has been resolute and unequivocal, supporting Israel, defending its, uh, backing its right to defend itself. There have been murmurings within the State Department about staff being dissatisfied by Washington's loyalty to uh, Jerusalem and how there is unease about the U.S. selling a series of arms to Israel Uh, which it's using against uh, Gaza. Uh, We also saw during a Senate testimony, for example, yesterday before he left, uh, before he's leaving to Israel, Anthony Blinken met with protesters who had paint on their hands, red paint, implying that America has blood on its hands.
2: Yeah, Joe Biden facing tough questions over Israel's strikes and uh, the civilian casualties as a result of those strikes. He was in Minnesota, I think, today, and there were protests that were greeting him. Is, is the tide of support turning in the US at all? Or, or you know, are, are those large protests that we are seeing, I suppose, not just in the US, but outside um, uh, of, of the US as well, and indeed um, on this side of the water, are, are they in any way putting, putting pressure uh, on the US administration?
0: Not visibly. I mean, the US stance has remained the same. But if we're going by polling, if you want to believe what the polls have shown, there has been a shift. And there are notable leaders within the Muslim community stateside who want Joe Biden to walk back some of the comments that he's made, apologise for the fact, for example, that he cast doubts on the death toll figures that were coming out of Gaza. And to look at this, you know, in more of of an impartial manner. They feel, for instance that Joe Biden has picked a side and stuck to it and that there hasn't been significant debate on this. Of course, everything in America is looked through the lens of politics. What will this do to Joe Biden's popularity? Muslim voters traditionally leaning with Democrats and Joe Biden's party. He'll be aware of, of, you know, losing support amongst that base as this conflict evolves. But the messaging that we've heard from the White House and the administration and that will be reinforced on Antony Blinken's trip is that the US continues to stand by Israel.
2: All right, there we leave it. Benji Hire, thank you for joining us for the very latest uh, from the US there. Um, and Kevin, just to bring you in briefly on that, uh, you know, as I say, unequivocal in their support for Israel, but you would wonder behind the scenes, you know, is there, are there, is there a message of restraint being sent out and... If, they're, if, they, they're not, if Israel
4: is not listening to the UN, does it listen to the US in this regard? It does listen to the US. Let's be honest with that, it traditionally has. And I think what may sway them, if, if it is to happen, is this is all rooted in history. This all goes back the decades. It all starts with religion. It starts with land and two sides having claim to the same land. What at some point you would hope they're going to realise is we're now living history. This is a whole new chapter that has been unleashed by things that happened decades and even mm-hmm. centuries ago and right now what we are seeing this week is a whole new chapter in history and these people, Joe Biden, Benjamin Netanyahu, picked the various world leaders, their names will be beside this chapter and it isn't going to be a pretty chapter.
2: Mm-hmm. Um you know, when it, when it comes to all of this and where, where this all leads to, Rory, and we know that there are strong calls on the Irish side for a full ceasefire. From Israel's point of view, they say if you're calling for a full ceasefire, uh, it, you know, Hamas are not going to stop firing rockets it's not going to stop Hamas's attacks um, against Israel.
1: We're talking about full ceasefire across the board, but let's be absolutely clear. Let's talk about the power differential between a nuclear power, which is Israel, versus the Palestinian people. So there's an element at times that there's a play on language and, and, you know, in relation. Now, I'll also say, Benjamin Netanyahu, this is the guy who also is on some level going to war probably because he's the you know, leader of an incredibly right-wing Israeli government that's looking to probably make a land grab to deal with particular issues and we've seen what they've done in the West Bank. He's also a guy who stood over an absolute intelligence failure from an Israeli security point of view um, and so he has to answer for that. Now from an Irish point of view. I would say we do have to make moves if we're talking about the um, the illegal settlement divestment bill, the occupied territories bill, and these are like the South African um, message we can provide in relation to Israel, that it's not OK. And also the leadership we need from America is what Bill Clinton probably did not only in relation to the Irish peace process, but also the Oslo Accords. And we have had Israeli governments that have moved back constantly from this and have literally been involved what is nothing other than colonial settlement. And what we're seeing at the minute, absolute slaughter.
2: Um, On this, uh, what Rory mentioned there about the Occupied Territory Bill and other bills, that we do hear criticism from the opposition, certainly, that, you know, the government, while they're taking a, a stand, a strong stand, in regard to what's happening right now, Um, in Gaza, um, that back home, you know, we're afraid to sign the paperwork, if you like,
3: well, not really. If you look <clears throat> if you look at the last three weeks, like at the very start of this conflict, the EU and Ursula von der Leyen would have been seen as certainly pro-Israel at the start and it wouldn't have changed uh, uh, without uh, the concerns and voices raised by the Minister of for Foreign Affairs, Micheál Martin, and, and the Taoiseach. Like, Ireland within the EU have been seen very strong on this in terms of giving a balanced approach. That's why we're, we're asking for a ceasefire on both sides, as, as Rory said. Uh, and, and that won't change. Like, we understand more than most um, uh, uh, what's happening in Gaza is utterly unacceptable uh, and, and the calls that have been made need to be done. The, you know, the four main calls in terms of opening up the borders, releasing hostages, ceasefire on both sides, medicine going in for, for vulnerable people, none of those have been done to the acceptance at the moment.
1: All right, okay. uh, we don't need American weapons. There
2: we will leave that uh, for now, but still to come on the programme, as a status yellow rain warning is in place for six counties, we discuss the impact of Storm Kieran after the break. Do stay with us. Welcome back. As of seven o'clock this evening, a status yellow rain warning is in place for six counties as Storm Chiron brushes the southeast. This comes at a time of unprecedented flooding right across the country. we we'll join joining my panel of Gareth Ahern, Rory O'Murku, and Kevin Doyle is Metair and meteorologist Linda Hughes. Linda, you're very welcome along to Thank the you. programme tonight. Um, storm Kieran is expected to brush off Ireland tonight. Uh, can you take us through the path of the storm and where it is now?
7: Yes, yeah, so actually the centre of the storm has kind of passed to the south of Ireland already. So we're kind of getting the edge of the northwestern side of of the system. Strongest winds on these storms are to the south and southwest. So as that moves eastwards, it's really going to impact northwest France quite severely, southern parts of England as well. So we are escaping the worst of it. We're just kind of, it's clipping the edge of the south and southeast of Ireland.
2: Uh, You've issued a yellow weather warning for those six uh, counties, of course. What went into your decision-making process there? Because as you say, we're sort of avoiding the worst of it, but were you bearing in mind uh, that the conditions that are already in place in saturated land?
7: Yes, yeah, so that was a big factor in this particular event. So the rain accumulations forecast aren't particularly extreme, um, so amounts may not reach kind of yellow level criteria that we would traditionally use, but we are moving more towards an impact-based warning system. So taking into account... Um, previous events that have happened, the amount of rainfall that's happened, kind of time of year, um, trees and leaf, things like that Mm -hmm. can all go into our decision-making for these warnings. So in this situation, we've had Weeks of of rainfall and particularly the south and southeast have already seen flooding. There's saturated, waterlogged ground, so the rain doesn't really have anywhere to go. So there's going to be um, there's going to be surface water, difficult travelling conditions as well, even with these lower amounts of
2: rainfall. So with all that, I mean, are there areas at risk of flooding tonight? So
7: this evening it'll be kind of the rain has already moved in, so it's moved in across parts of the south, so into Cork, Waterford, moving up into Wexford, which um, into Carlo Kilkenny um, overnight as well. So these areas may see some localized flooding um, through this evening and tonight. So really, any any part of those those areas
2: could see some uh, spot flooding. All right. Okay, Rory O'Meara, just to bring you in on this in your own constituency in Louth, um, Carlingford in particular was very badly hit. What's the situation there now? Because <laughs> it got a deluge of rain on on Sunday night that sparked
1: this flooding? You're you're talking about a deluge that you couldn't have dealt with at at any time now. There are people who have complaints in relation to the fact that there's issues that need to be dealt with as regards drainage. And if we can get through the next 24 hours, I think we have to have conversations around the flood protections of CFRAM, what difference that would make, how quickly we can get those in place. We need to look at the issues in relation to drainage. If I'm talking about, at this point in time, I was talking to Councillor Anton Waters just as I was walking in the door here and he's still dealing with, um, with, the, with the fire service and the whole pile of issues around houses in Ballurgan that are still facing being flooded at this point in time. There's a huge issue in relation to roads and people trapped in. That is also still happening uh, in Dundalk. In Dundalk, we had absolutely dreadful weather. We were very lucky, even in my own estate... Of base date, mm-hmm. you you might have seen pictures of people going around kayaking. You know, you could have done that at twelve o'clock last night. We had rains again, which usually wouldn't be serious, but just on top of the rains that had happened previously. And um, I, I went round this morning; the, it had increased a huge amount. We had a small amount of rain in the middle of the day. We were dealing with what could have been disaster. We we have an issue that wastewater is not uh, wastewater and the sewage system and the pumping station system cannot cope in any way, shape or form. And that is something that needs to be addressed. Many of us have brought this up before. I have questions into Irish water and I'll be honest, you go from the council, you go to Irish Water, and it's actually a private company that it's subcontracted to. So there are huge issues around capacity that <clears throat> yeah. need to be dealt with. Yeah. And as I say, right. the businesses in Carlingford need right. absolute support. Uh,
2: Gareth, uh, this is the point that has sort of been made around when we have flooding. If we had, I suppose, a perfect, you know, flood defences, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have towns and, and villages. Um, impact I know in Clonmel that's been in place and yeah. it has benefited uh, in your people in your constituency hu- hu- hugely. But for those who don't have that, then all the systems seem to break down and you, you have that problem with the with the backup of water meaning that places simply can't cope if further rainwater comes down.
3: Yeah, no, and Rory's right. Uh, uh, Carlingford and Dundalk have had that yesterday and today I was talking to Senator John McGahan who's delivering sandbags right across uh, North uh, uh, allowed the last two days uh, to businesses and to homeowners. Um, but there, there is a plan in place. It's National Development Plan 2030. The Minister for the OPW, Patrick... 2030, sure. Well, you no, know, <clears throat> so, so it's a National but, Development Plan yeah. tw- 2030. That's what it's called. And what it is essentially... Just less than 100 um, flood defence schemes were were put in place. 98. About 60 of them have been completed. My hometown in Clamella is one ever ever since that was done. We've never had a flood flood since. There's 60 others around the country that are the same. The likes abandoned for my matto But there's more to do. Uh, and they need to be speeded up. Money isn't an object. This is this is a, a plan of 100 uh, uh, flood schemes so w- with a cost of 1.3 billion. What's the delay? <coughs> well, if you speak to to Minister Patrick O'Donovan, he will say categorically it's the planning process and delays within planning and uh, objections. Um, you know, or is
2: it that we didn't plan sooner on all of this no, and now no, those flood schemes are, are no, like, facing uh, all these planning my, my, delays my, my, my because hometown, we're trying to do a lot in a short space
3: of time. No, my, my hometown is a, is, a, is a perfect example where the plan was put in place uh, in time. Uh, and there's loads of other examples like that. Um, but it's just impossible to get them all done as quickly as we would like. Uh, but we need to make sure that they're and you're done a as quickly as possible. Place.
2: OK, Kevin, to bring you in on that, I mean, is it NIMBYism that's holding up the show here and, and why we're seeing areas at, at very high risk of flooding and then other places that simply, you know, may have been at risk in the past, but because they have the resources in place and because they... They have these uh, flood uh, scheme, relief schemes in place that
4: they're safe. It's incredibly hard to understand because, as Garrett says, money does seem to be no object here. There is 1.3 billion has been set aside for years. Uh, and there's, But yet there's no timeline really from the OPW for reams of those schemes that Garrett is talking about. And it is very hard to explain because you look at the Clonmel example where, like, if we go back, is it 10 or 15 years, 15 years, Garrett, every time we talked about flooding, we talked about Clonmel. And now we never, it never makes the news in that context anymore. So there is something wrong with the system. But it's, it's something that's wrong with the system with everything we do in this country, whether it's a metro or a children's hospital. Um, these things just don't seem to happen in any sort of timely way. And we've known flooding isn't a new thing. I think we're more aware of it because some of the systems that Met Aaron. Have brought in around the the alert systems, but it's not a new thing. We
2: we talk about it when it's happened, but until it in the happens, moment. it's not a tangible thing for people. So uh, uh, policymakers then don't don't plan ahead. Rory, would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, so look here, if we're talking about the CFram in in County Louth, like we've a huge period of time where you, where you constantly get answers back okay. in relation to the fact. That uh, yeah, we're talking about the design phase. We're talking about consultants need to be appointed because you don't have. What the What is capa-
2: Cfram? Sorry, just to C C it.
1: Cfram is literally the flood protection uh, okay, scheme that that is planned. It's oh, and, right. and and in fairness, we're very glad it was done. The problem for a lot of people, they can't get house insurance at this point in time because Cfram has proven that you are in danger of being flooded. So we really need those protections to come in place, even from an insurance point of view.
2: Uh, Linda. Um, for many, it'll feel that there has been sort of constant rain for the past few months, but how does it measure up uh, compared to recent years?
7: Well, this year has been exceptional, um, particularly uh, stations in Cork have recorded their you know, record-breaking uh, wet weather in October, um, and many parts of the country have already seen um, a year's worth of rainfall already with two months to go. So it has been exceptionally wet um, year so far. Um, and uh, with, with the warming climate, there is more moisture in the air. Um, we are going to see more rainfall as a result of increasing temperatures. So, so it is going to be something that we will be, will be dealing with um, as we go forward in the future. There will be more rainfall events and flooding. So is
2: this what we're seeing as a result of climate change, Linda? Um, in terms of the, the the increased rain and you know, in turn, making the land saturated because you know it is storm season. It storms this time of year is storm season um, the same as any other uh, year. So, is yeah. it is a climate change that makes it different this year that makes you know? places more susceptible to flooding and to the impacts of the weather?
7: Yeah, well, look, this time of year, storms are normal, low-pressure systems coming across the Atlantic, reaching Ireland. You know, we do have bad weather. It's not an unusual thing to have bad weather, heavy amounts of rainfall and flooding. Uh, But just on a whole, um, looking at things in a general way, um, looking back, you know, through the decades there is a trend that we are seeing higher amounts of rainfall and higher temperatures. Um, So it's more of a general trend. We can't necessarily say that, you know, the last three weeks are necessarily down to climate change. There have been periods in the past Mm -hmm. where we'd have similar situations. But on a whole, um, that's the trend that we're moving towards.
2: Uh, Kevin, uh, I know that your own paper, you know, looked at the, the, the impact on coastal areas and specifically mm. around government policy about what they plan to do to protect coastal areas um, from flooding. Uh, one of it is sort of a, a managed retreat. Talk us through that policy.
4: Yeah, so if you think putting up flood defences and flood barriers is controversial, wait till we get to trying to move people out of their homes and effectively abandon them um, in some ways because they're, they're what the government is now going to look at um, and I suspect this will be over quite a long period of time, but there are homes all around the coast um, that are too close to the sea. And as, as sea levels rise, those homes, those businesses are at risk. So this new buzz phrase, which we're going to hear a lot of, I, I reckon, over the next decade, is going to be this idea of a managed retreat. Um, they haven't identified any areas yet, but we know, for example, the Housing Minister, Daryl Ryan, has signalled there's lots of problems in North County, Dublin. Um, where, where houses have been built close to the sea. So we're not just talking about... So is that
2: people leaving their homes, uh, uh, abandoning ship, if you like, that, but actually being told, look, you're, you're literally where, you, where you're where you living is in danger is of Is that risk? The government is going to
4: have to come up with a scheme to rehouse people somewhere further back from the coast. So it's not saying that if you live in Port Marnock, you have to go and live in Offaly because you're the furthest from the sea. But it may be that you have to live somewhere else in that area. And, and obviously that's problematic because finding housing, as we know as a whole... Other conversations. Interesting.
2: That we have with... that, which brings in the other question: How do how do homes that are at risk get planning?
3: Yeah. Well, look. First of all, uh, just to say, like as Kevin said, there's nowhere that's been identified yet, so there's no need for for, for anyone to, anyone to worry about that yet. That's that's just something that's been discussed and, and looked at. But um, yeah, well, it's
2: a policy. I think they should worry confirm. about it because
4: the problem well, is if we don't I mean, worry about it, it
2: now, it'll
3: no, no, it be too but, late. But individuals tonight don't need to worry about that they're going to be moved anytime soon. So do you uh, foresee
2: it as being very contentious then?
3: Well, well, if you're going to move anyone, obviously that that's contentious. But but um, but like, there's only discussions happening at the moment. So what I'm essentially saying for people at home uh, who are watching the show tonight, not to worry that they're going to be moved in the next mm. couple of months or a or, or, or number of short years, that's, that's just not going to happen. Are we scared
2: to have these conversations, do you think?
3: Well, I'm just concerned that we might be scaring some of the public at home, mm. that's all.
2: Do you, do you believe that, Rory, that these conversations and difficult conversations about, you know, where people plan to live and, and you know, building on floodplains, likewise that, you know, living in coastal areas uh, we, 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 could, could be problematic in the future? We've we
1: probably dealt with some of the issues in relation to some of those pla- planning and on- anomaly stroke planning disasters that happened as regards people um, literally being able to build in floodplains. But look, I told you earlier about Dundalk And that part of Dundalk that I live in, and the fact is, we don't have a capacity for dealing with our wastewater, our our sewerage system at this point in time, Mm. and see until we plan for that, then that allows us to deal with these sort of situations, and then we need to look at flood defences and whatever else. I have no difficulty, we have to make plans, we also have to make a determination that we that we do whatever is necessary with our European partners and others All from right. a point of view of moving us into a better situation okay. from a climate change point of view.
2: There, we are going to leave it. Uh, my thanks to Linda Hughes um, for coming in and bringing us the very latest uh, on Storm, Karen. Uh, coming up next, though, uh, will rising hotel prices put Bruce Springsteen fans off Dancing in the Dark next year? Do stay with us. Welcome back. Bruce Springsteen fans have hit out at soaring price increases for hotel rooms that coincide with the Boss's Tour next summer. Reportedly, one four star hotel several kilometres away from Croke Park is charging. €489 euro for a room on Thursday, May 19th. That's when he's playing in the capital. The same room is less than half that price the following week. Well, Gerrit Rory O'Murku and Kevin Doyle are still with me and we're also joined by hotelier John Brennan. Uh, John, thanks um, for joining us on the programme tonight. You're going to say Hitler. all of this is completely justified when it comes to hotel prices and big gigs coming to town.
6: Excellent. Well, you're dead right. And... Um, the the bottom line is there is no hotel in the world that operates without a market and the market dictates the the price not the product not the product and not the hotel and if the market is willing to pay that money that's the price you pay and it's relevant in every city in every event in the world Whether it's Formula One comes to an event or there's a big race in um, Newmarket in England next week, it's irrelevant. Prices go up and down with demand. It's not exclusive to hotels. It's exclusive right across the world in all various aspects of commercial life. And that's just the world we live in. Do
2: you believe it's more pronounced here in Ireland, though? Because we've heard about rip-off hotel prices. Actually, we're not just talking about during gigs or any of those times, but just generally speaking that we pay a lot for a hotel room in Ireland. But do you believe the price increases that we see here when you compare us to other European countries and elsewhere, we do see those more pronounced increases?
6: Um, I think we discuss them more in programmes of this nature. I think the average rate of, of um we're associated with an association worldwide, Raleigh Chateau, there's 544 hotels worldwide. The average rate for our colleagues in America is 2,000 euros a night. The average rate for the hotels in Ireland is probably around about 460 euros a night. Ireland as a tourism destination is not expensive. We don't get that feedback from Fort Ireland to exit polls. We don't get the feedback from people on the street. And I spent the last 10 days touring America with travel agents doesn't come up in conversation. We beat ourselves up here in this country on price. But I go back to my main point. We operate in a commercial world. We charge a rate, and I don't own a hotel in Ireland, or in Dublin, rather. Um, I own three hotels in Kenmare, um, but I only charge the rate that the market is willing to pay. And yes, The same um, um, scenario can be put towards us, Claire. whether it's August or January. It's the exact same scenario. So
2: you'd be doing the same, as you say, you don't have a hotel in Dublin, but three in Kenmare if Bruce Springsteen was to make it down uh, to that part of the country. How much would you jack your prices up by? Um...
6: to be honest with you now I'm in business 45 years in the tourism business and 30 years in Kenmare and there's only one event that brings business to Kenmare to us and that's the bearer cycle um, every year and we actually don't put up rates at all because I fundamentally think it's wrong so you don't do it it.
2: you
7: don't do it no I've never
6: done it And I've never done it. And in addition to this, um, and Ireland every year, we must must submit to Falsh Ireland, actually this week for the hotels. And the deadline is the 16th of November. And we must submit to um, Falsh Ireland our maximum charges per room for the year. And that goes in for 2024 next week. Um, And we cannot charge. It doesn't matter. You can bring, I would much prefer to bring you two to Kenmare than Bruce Springsteen. But you could bring them to Kenmare and create a wonderful event legally, that's the rate we have to charge what we've in
2: Let's bring the panel in here. Now, John, maybe he's playing Maybe he's playing bad guy because he's saying he wouldn't increase his prices. But Kevin, what, what do you make of that? As um, You'd be a Bruce Springsteen fan, but what mm-hmm. do you make of the, the prices we're seeing? We get that defence. We've heard it from John. The Hotel Federations of Ireland has said that cities around the world can experience increase in hotel prices during major events. And that's what happens. Demand increases and it's significantly uh, relative to supply.
4: So I think John is right in his fundamental point, which is anyone who went to the Rugby World Cup, of which a lot of Irish people did over the last few weeks, will know that the prices they paid in Paris definitely carried a big tournament levy on top of what you might expect to pay in Paris is expensive anywhere. So it does, it happens absolutely everywhere. What makes it harder to swallow in a scenario where you're talking about something like a concert in Crow Park or Nolan Park or, or down in Cork is that it's domestic customers. So those prices that John is quoting and saying the service that Faultier Ireland are doing, I would imagine are primarily targeted at our big focused market, which is rich Americans, let's be honest. They're the people we want over here spending their money in Germans and French. Um, if you're coming up from Galway to go to a gig in Crow Park for the night and have to shell out €400 euro for a hotel, that's very hard to do because you're not getting this idea of coming into right. a country for a holiday. Okay. You're just doing one night out in Dublin.
2: OK, so, uh, Rory, would you think those prices that we're seeing are justified, given no, what John the... is saying about the yeah. hotel market? And I was about to say, John
1: John said it. He said it's none of this is right. He doesn't think it's fair in any way, shape or form, so he doesn't operate it. Now, unfortunately, everyone's not like John. We've had gouging and price gouging um, it, for hotel um, for, many, for many, many years. And at times we hear things about, <coughs> oh, it's owned by... You know, the tickets have already previously been bought by... A booking um, website or that there's an algorithm that kicks in somewhat like Ryanair and if they see there's an awful lot of action it automatically happens but I think we've known about this for long enough that we can definitely address this and I think we're talking about uh, well, how no well look let's talk about like if we're talking about sustainable um, tourism if we're talking about not mm. screwing over people in the domestic market I think there's an element of the minister and in fairness government at times has been very kind uh, to to um, to hoteliers, you know, through the COVID so what, period what and all do, the rest, they rest step of it. In, so I step think, in well, with I, think I think Oh no, I think there has to be proper interaction by the minister, and we see what can be done in relation uh, to this. Because I don't think I, there's anyone out I there I that thinks get, this is okay. Okay,
2: I just want to get John. Would you? Uh, what would you think if, if the minister um, for arts, sport, and tourism said, "Listen, you know, pull in your prices. You're just charging too much, and you shouldn't yeah. be."
6: Okay. Uh, Two replies to that. I don't believe that no French person went to a rugby match in France. And they were subject to the same prices as everyone else who attended a rugby match in France, and um, that is just the nature of it. Um, in relation to the government stepping in 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 addressing um, the price or putting a price cap on rooms, and the the the, the, the comment regarding um, the tour the government being good to the tourism industry over COVID is absolutely 100%. And you'll see me on record many times saying that. The government acted overnight when this country was hit by the tsunami that hit the world, mm-hmm. and we were probably better funded and better supported by our state okay. bodies if than they any said, other if country. If they said in pull the down
2: your prices, there's 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 nothing to Compel you to
6: do that. hold on now, just let me finish for one moment, okay? Because in that in that scenario, they reduced their VAT rate to nine percent, which was absolutely crucial to many, many hotels staying open. However, and don't get me wrong, I'm not fighting the point on the VAT, but I think it is important to note that our three main competitors from a tourism point of view, and the countries that are thrown back to the industry always for showing better value, which is Italy, Spain, France, and Portugal, all have their VAT rates at ten percent. Okay. just one second there now we're at 13 and a half percent on the west coast str- on the west coast of europe which a tourism product that operates from Mizzen to Malin. Uh, to Malin, and as a result we have to promote we have to operate in the market All and right. in the in the in the environment okay. in which we are provided with
2: And we hear a lot about that rate, but very briefly, Gareth, on prices, are are they justifiable?
3: Not at all. The the frustration for the people is they recognise that the government supported hoteliers through COVID and now they're taking advantage of the people. And that's what's frustrating. We had a problem in terms of of tickets. We introduced the the resale of tickets bill, which helped in terms of you can't sell tickets for overpriced. Now we have a problem with hotels that are taking advantage of the public. It's not fair. And for someone from Tipperary who has to travel outside to these concerts... People can't say overnight they have to come back to Tipperary. All right.
2: Okay. that is all we'll have time for. I'm sure it'll come up again, though. That is it from us. My thanks to John, uh, to Gareth, to Rory and to Kevin, from all the late team here. Good night. Do take care.